The Mike Tamano Happening. Welcome to the Mike Tamano Happening, where I, Mike Tamano, host great conversations with amazing people. I hope all is well since we last met, or more appropriately, when my stream of consciousness via various streaming services entered your stream of listening enjoyment time allotment. So thank you for making time for me once again. My Tamano blog continues to catch fire at MikeTamano.com. It's my bi-weekly ruminations on the state of the world, entertainment, political issues, and whatever else travels from my brain to my keyboard. I've been listening a lot to the new Ted Nugent album, Detroit Muscle, and it features some of his best work, some really great songs. Uh, I suggest you get a copy on CD to take along with you on your travels and a vinyl copy to enjoy the uh, lush production on your home system. Yeah, cool stuff. A summertime soundtrack for sure, and you can check out my review of it on MikeTamano.com as well. So as summer approaches, uh, my workload increases with the Baked Potatoes band playing most weekends, sometimes two shows, and I continue my music teaching gig. And of course, my daily morning radio show, which you can hear mornings 5 to 10 in the Kankakee River Valley of Illinois, uh, streaming live at WVLI927.com. So that's 5 to 10 central during the week. Or you could just download the Valley app and take it with you wherever you go. And that, the instructions for that are also at uh, WVLI927.com, I think. I, I, listen, I've never downloaded an app in my life. My daughter does everything on my phone for me other than answer, take calls, and text. So in between work, of course, I'm spending as much time as I can with my wife and daughter, squeezing some fishing in as well. And so far, the fishing's been tough, man. It seems to rain every other day in Illinois. And, and like I've stated before, the state sees about five to six really gorgeous days per year. And the rest are either cold and snowing or miserable and raining. So the retirement plan, definitely leaning toward a state with mild to no winter climate. Or if it does have a major winter, it's got to be someplace that I can chase moose, elk, and bear with my bow and arrow. You know, I'm not a skier. I don't snowmobile, so, you know, if I'm going to do winter, it's got to offer more than just sliding around on ice covering Illinois dilapidated roads. So as the world continues to spin out of control, my time in the woods and on the water are becoming more and more crucial to my happiness. My wife and I have set a goal for 2023, which includes no purchasing of vegetables or meat from the grocery store, relying on produce we get from our ever-expanding garden, eggs from our chickens, and game meat that I procure from my adventures afield. And my wife is a hell of a gardener, so the luck you wish should be applied to my hunting and fishing escapades. This episode's guest is a true inspiration. I've been a great admirer of hers for many, many years. Brenda Valentine is the first lady of hunting, and she's responsible in large part for leading women into the field through her great example. She's a respected writer, media host, juggernaut in the outdoors industry, national spokesperson for the National Wild Turkey Federation, host of the National Wild Turkey Federation's award-winning TV program, Turkey Call, Bass Pro Shops and National Redhead Hunting Team member. She appeared on uh, Bass Pro's Real Hunting TV, and she's a regular on their King of Bucks program. She's the first woman inducted into the National Legends of the Outdoors Hall of Fame, a member of the West Tennessee Sports Hall of Fame, a nominee for the National Archery Hall of Fame, 2012 inductee into the Tennessee Turkey Hunters Hall of Fame, 2013 Professional Outdoor Media Association Pinnacle Award, and the only woman and the first woman to represent the outdoor and hunting industry in the 2012 Armed Forces Entertainment Outdoor Legends Southeast Asia Tour. National champion, 3D archer. She's been in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, she's really an amazing woman, a real down-to-earth person that I always enjoy talking with. And it's been much too long since we've had a chat with Brenda Valentine. Well, welcome to the Mike Tomano Happening, Brenda Valentine. How are you? Well, 
I'm wonderful. Gosh, how could I not be any other way? You know, it's right. summertime finally. Finally. And uh, congratulations on bagging your turkey yesterday. Well, that actually wasn't yesterday. The season closed on Sunday. Oh, it did uh, close. Okay. So it was over the yes. weekend? Well, here in Tennessee, we have, you know, a three-bird spring limit. And so I drizzled it out throughout that <laughs> six-week season. And I don't like to tag out, you know, just immediately. I like to savor the season a while. And so I'll, uh, you know, try to get one the first week. And then I diddle around and maybe take somebody else hunting or do something. So I, I drag it out just so I can enjoy the full season. But right. thank you for the congratulations. There you go. I'm tickled. Yeah. Well, you know, Brenda, it seems as long as I've been following outdoor media, your name has been at the top. And I want to start at your childhood for my listeners and where you were born and raised and how the great outdoors was a lifestyle, more than just a, 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 an interest or a hobby. <laughs> uh when I grew up, I don't remember people having hobbies. You know, it was either uh, work or more work. I, I don't remember much else, but I grew up here in northwest Tennessee in the same county that I still live in. And we were just poor farmers. We lived uh, in a remote area and we row cropped, uh, hunted, fished, grew our own everything we eat so we were pretty much uh well we weren't survivalists but we lived off the land yeah. as did most people in our area that was it you know you you had a milk cow you had chickens and you had uh your own pork and and you hunted mm -hmm. we did we uh we my father was a, a very avid talented gifted outdoorsman um he you know just one of the best shots probably the best shot i've ever been around just open sights and and the old raw kind of mm. uh, shooting and he trained hunting dogs we we always had a pack of hounds around there and he had a reputation for you know, that he could make a poodle tree a coon. So that was, uh, <laughs> that was kind of the, and I was the oldest child. So that was the uh, atmosphere that I grew up in. There wasn't yeah. much big game. Uh, back in those days, turkeys hadn't been introduced. And um, it was, it was mostly squirrel and coon, possum, you know, stuff like that. But you know, you get enough of them, it'll fill the pot. That's right. Well, there's a self-sufficiency that comes along with uh, rural living. And my mother was from Tennessee and my it childhood summers were spent in Dyersburg and Rutherford and Humboldt. And Okay. That's, that's right here in Northwest Tennessee. Yes. So you, yes. You, you know how it is. It's catfishing, crappie fishing, frog gigging. That's uh, it. You know, all of that, you know, duck hunting is huge in that area now because of, you know, Mississippi River and Real Foot Lake and yeah. all of that around there. So, so I'm glad that, that you sampled this lifestyle. I did. Well, I grew up in the city. Now I live on a farm uh, in a rural area, but I grew up in Chicago. And so those excursions. Bless your heart. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> those excursions in my youth to the uh, to the uh, to the state of Tennessee and going on trips to Wisconsin with my father, the lure of the great outdoors took hold, and the magic spell uh, enchanted me. And it, it, it now it thrives more than ever. It's it's part of my existence. So when did you decide, Brenda, that besides being a participant in a hunter and a in a fisher, that you would pursue a career around the outdoors? Well, actually, I never decided that. Uh, the, the career pretty much came to me. I believe it was all strictly timing that I came along at a time when the industry was ready to accept women. Yes. And the doors opened, and I thank the good Lord that I had enough sense to just walk through that door. But, um, you know, it was some of the companies started approaching me. I, I shot a bow. I shot very well and entered in a lot of competitions. And I believe that 
got uh, got the wheels turning just a little bit to where I was being noticed. And it wasn't long till, you know, Bass Pro asked me to come and do seminars on bow hunting. And, you know, I was pretty, um, I don't know, shy of getting up in front of a ton of people and trying to explain to them how I found success bow hunting every year. And, you know, it was intimidating to speak to big audiences of 99% men and try to convince them that I knew what I was talking about. Right. I lived it and I did it every day. Right. But, uh, but for some reason, you know, I was accepted. And so companies like, you know, Mossy Oak and, and Bass Pro and PSE and, and different major companies saw a need maybe to have a female representative in the industry. And, for some reason or another, they chose this uh, this hillbilly lady <laughs> <laughs> to, you know, get up and, and tell that. And, uh, you know, I've had a lot of comments over the years and, you know, had enjoyed a wonderful, successful career at it. I already had a career. I uh, owned a hair salon, did a, you know, male and female hair, uh, had some pretty uh, recognizable names being down here this close to Nashville that were my clients. And when this door opened, I just shut the other door and walked in blinded. Mm. Uh, my husband and family said, what in the world are you thinking? I said, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know, but I'm walking through this door and I never looked back. It just and felt it, right. Yeah, it, it did. Yes. Watching you on television or reading what you've uh, written about, you know, turkey calling and, and hunting. And I think it's because you're very accessible and you're very much a neighbor type. And so people, they feel like there's an authenticity and a, and a, a genuine feel for you when they hear you speak. And I think that has always been what has drawn people to you and why people are still talking about the impact you had you know, the first lady of hunting, you have introduced women to, hey, you know, don't sit home and wait for the guys to come home from the duck hunt or from the deer stand. Get out there and do it. And it's odd because most of the women that I know that hunt are such good shots. And there's something about a woman hunter. Stuff doesn't get in their way when they're hunting. Guys, they have all kinds of uh, psychic baggage when they're in the tree stand or, or calling that turkey in. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I, I totally agree. I, I'll I'll kind of respond to that maybe in the order that you threw it at me. But, uh, you know, what good is knowing something if you don't share it? Right. You know, if, if you know it and don't share it, all it is is a secret. And hunting is not a secret. You know, there's there's everybody has different methods and most of them work or sometimes none of them work. Right. But, you know but share what you've learned that works. And so I, I hope I am accessible and I hope, you know, the biggest frustration to me is sometimes people don't listen and, right. and they just keep doing the wrong thing over and over when it would be so simple. Uh, yeah. I've trained some horses now and I have the same feeling with them. You know, I, I teach, <laughs> do the same thing every day and it's like they wake up in a new world every day and i have to go over the same right lesson. i just came in from the barn and it's like don't you remember what we've talked about yesterday and yes but, um and i don't know the other things that you mentioned um you know about uh i don't know spreading the word and maybe maybe we all have a calling mm. and maybe if we'd listen to that calling, um, the world might be better. And yeah. I feel like the people that use their talents are the happiest. And perhaps my, my talent is not calling turkeys. <clears throat> right. But maybe it's outsmarting turkeys. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you, uh, they're, there are such talented people that enter contests that sound more like a turkey than a real turkey does. And much more than me, 
but I, my freezer's full. Right, right. How's so that? you've had some, you know, it's funny when you mentioned that people that you give them advice and sometimes they don't listen. There's a tract of public land that I hunt successfully. And my buddies have said, I'm going to hunt that area. And I said, well, here's the deal. If you get out there early, go way in the back. And if right. you get out there late, stay towards the parking lot. And right. they think that's... I know your strategy. Yes. And it's <laughs> like, I said, because these deer aren't leaving, they're going to move around with the people. And so if, if you get there early, you know, but they don't listen. They put their tree stand in the same spot every oh. time. And then they wonder why they don't see anything. It's just... I know. Use yeah. those people. You're right. Them run them to you. Heck yeah. I ask that's everybody that, everybody that hunts, I ask them for a tip. And so, you know... Uh, with with turkey calling because I've I've been uh, mediocre on that. Is it is it calling too much? And I find this maybe with deer calls too that people tend to have a call and they think that they have to constantly be knocking it around. Ah, they're bored. <laughs> yeah, right. And so can you, well, you can you can overcall any animal? I believe. Oh, let me tell you. Every time you make a call, you are offering the opportunity for them to figure you out mm. so just think about it. when when you are quiet you're not giving yourself away but when every time you make a sound it's like somebody that talks too much mm -hmm. you know every time they open their mouth mm. you learn a little bit more about them and it's the same way every time if you're sitting there with a turkey call just yammer yammer yammering it's not long until they figure out, hey, this ain't a turkey. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and my tip, uh, you said you ask everyone for a tip, is take your lead from the real turkeys. You know, if you want to sound like a hen, do what the hens are doing because the hens don't do the same thing every day. Mm. You know, there's different cycles they go through according to the time of the year and their their the breeding uh, period that they're in at that time, you know, they may be very vocal trying to get noticed by the gobblers, or they may totally shut up because they don't want a gobbler around, you know, they may be sneaking off to lay an egg or, or they may be, uh, just coming on the nest and coming out to eat a little bit. But if you're out there often, you will pick up on what the hens are doing at that particular time, do what they do. Right. You know, if they're just, yakking back and forth and making all kind of racket and you can hear them all over the woods jump in and and yak with them but if you're sitting and you see hens out bugging and pecking and scratching around and they're not making one sound well then that might be the lesson of the day that you need do what they're doing mm. yeah yeah because you're not going to introduce the noise to the, to the game, the game has to introduce it to you. Yeah. Exactly. I find, you know, exactly. that happens sometimes with, um, with elk callers as well. They, they tend to call mm -hmm. a lot and it's been said that the, the major bulls already know what every other elk sounds like in the woods. So the more you right. call, the more, like you said, you're giving yourself away. Yeah. Well, I think people like that sound. You know, everybody loves to hear a turkey <laughs> right, gobble, and right. everybody loves to hear an elk bugle or an old buck do that excited grunt. Yes. You know, you, we love that sound. And so we just sit there and do it to entertain ourselves. It's like playing an instrument. Times. Right, right, right. And so, you know, it, it defeats the purpose. It, it's a great tool when it's used correctly. And when it's used incorrectly, it's your worst enemy. Yeah. You know, one of the great pleasures in my life is introducing children. We have a kids camp we do every year where we teach them uh, hunting and fishing skills and how to canoe and how to shoot archery. And right. you bring people in from the city who have never even, never even given it a second thought. What advice do you have for getting that family member, that cousin, that neighbor who has never even thought of hunting to maybe give it a try? You know, I don't push hunting on anybody. Uh, I'm finally decided that I feel it's a genetic thing. I think I think in the beginning uh, God gave everybody a job and you know he created doctors and bricklayers and teachers and you know what have you. And I also think he, he created providers 
and those providers are farmers and hunters. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and I think, you know, not everybody, I mean, realizes that they're genetically inclined to hunt. Just going out in the woods doesn't make you a hunter. You have to feel a challenge or some kind of, uh, you want to outsmart that animal and bring mm-hmm. it home to to the tribe or whatever. I, I don't want to get too far out on this. No, but it, it is a primal thing. And, and it's funny you mentioned that some people are, are inclined toward it because my wife is a wonderful gardener. But she has no interest in killing an animal. And for me, it's the reward that it spans the spectrum of emotions because I do, I do feel sad when I take a life of an animal, you know, and people don't understand that. They're like, well, if you feel sad, why do you do it? Because you can't explain the entire process that goes into it and the, the spiritual connection. Does your wife feel sad when she picks a tomato or, <laughs> right, right i mean no she's under she body, understands it completely she just doesn't think oh, she yeah. could do it you know oh, i i think um i read a little quote the other day and it's like hunting is not a blood sport but it is a sport that's in our blood right amen and so it's yeah nobody loves animals more than me heck i live on a farm and i'm, I'm surrounded by animals i i love them to death and I enjoy watching these go now that are dropping fawns yeah. and hopefully these turkeys that are bringing up poults. But come this fall, I have no problem going out and and putting a buck on the ground or a doe yeah. and bringing it home and putting it in my freezer. Same way with the turkeys. You know, it's there's nothing much prettier than a big old gobbler all fanned out unless... It's a freezer full of packaged meat that I know we're going to enjoy for the next year. Amen. You know, I have to work on my patience game. The last uh, two seasons, I've killed does uh, probably within minutes of a giant buck showing up. Why? Why do I do that? What is? Is it? There's some hunters that are just opportunists. We're going to take the like Fred Eichler always says. The animal I'm going to shoot is the first animal that shows up. There's something about, I, I just, because I've got that freezer on my mind. Do you ever hold out for yeah. uh, big trophies or does that matter to you? I do. Um, and it's not about the trophies as much as it is uh, drawing out the hunt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Savoring it, you know, I, because I've hunted a lot of years and I sit there and I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to shoot this one because the next one might be something special and you know and dark comes and i fold up my stuff and pack my bag and i trudge out in the dark and i'm looking forward i'm like well in the morning you know it might Mm. be that monster i've never seen or it may be uh something that i really want to take maybe you know because this doe will come out and i'm thinking you know she she probably would raise another few fawns, you know, or whatever. But um, I talk myself out of it a lot. Yeah, and, right. You know, it, that's if I'm hunting on my own farm. If I buy a hunt, go out of state, I'm like Fred Eichler. The first thing that gives me an opportunity <laughs> oh, is yeah. coming home with me because right. I know I don't have the luxury of fiddling around for a right. month. I've got to... to put a tag on it and bring it on home. So no, I don't sit there and pick and choose and dilly around. Um, if I'm on public land or if I'm out of state on a a paid hunt or something like that, Mm. but if I'm here on the farm, you know, it's a little bit different. I can be a little more relaxed and think, well, you know, I'll watch this food plot. These same deer may come in tomorrow and they may bring a neighbor deer in with them or something. But that's a luxury that not everyone has. And when you're on public land or just a paid hunt, I advise anybody. If if it's a deer that you're happy with, Go whether it. it's yeah. a spike, a big fat doe, or a, a, something that you want to put on the wall, it's your license, it's your hunt, and it'll be your deer. Yeah. Well, Brenda, you know, running your farm and, and managing it for critters for folks with small acreage to hunt, you know, those of us who have tracks of 10, 20, and 40 acre lots to hunt, what 
advice do you have for improving the wildlife habitat to uh, proliferate, you know, hunting opportunities? Well, one is find out what your neighbors are planting and plant something different. Um, if you're doing it in food plots, you know, I'm surrounded by farm communities and every year it's either soybeans or corn. Right. So I try to plant something different <clears throat> rather than this jungle of corn that surrounds my farm, which isn't a large farm. So, you know, maybe I'll do clover or maybe I'll do <clears throat> sorghum or, or sunflowers or something totally different so that uh, the deer may be attracted. Maybe they're tired of corn and want a little change in their diet or something, or, or maybe something that's going to last better during mm -hmm. the cold season once the crops are brought in. You know, they keep rummaging through soybean fields after they've been combined, but I don't see a lot there. So they may be attracted to a clover field that stays green all winter. Right. So that and let it grow up. You know, we all want to just mow them down and make it look groomed and nice and everything. But uh, I think six years ago, I put in. 25 acres of native grasses and pollinators. It was in the CRP program, took it out of row crop and put it into that. And I've been able to see a tremendous difference in ground nesting animals because they have a mm. better nesting place. And I see better deer, more deer, because there's hiding places there. Um, during hunting season, you know, you can just, they make their trails through this big tall right. uh, big blue stem and and gamma grass indian grass and stuff like that it, it's a perfect habitat for them and i've i've been very pleased that i did this uh and i'll probably continue yeah i've noticed that when we have downfalls we have a a spot i'll if there's if it's not in the way of people getting in and out of the woods I'll mm -hmm. leave it because I have found bucks love to bed next to downfalls. Exactly. They love to snuggle right up to them. And I've, I've been busted a couple times on my way to my stand by the bucks next to this particular downfall. And also when you see twigs and stuff, pile them up for the, for the small game and, and turkeys love oh, that. Rabbits love a brush pile. That's, yeah. You'll have more rabbits. You'll have more quail, which you, we hardly ever have quail, but in places where they have pheasants. They need those brush piles and they, they need a place to get away from the hawks and, and yeah. all of the ground. We have a lot of fox, a lot of coyotes and bobcats and these little animals, if they don't have some kind of hiding place, they just don't make it. You know, going out to uh, Texas a few years ago to hunt on a, a friend's ranch, which it was the first time I hunted in Texas and I absolutely fell in love with it. The amount of animals that you see. And it's odd oh, in Texas. Texas. You're driving yeah. down the road and you see a zebra in someone's yard. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> but huh? I saw so much, so many road killed hogs. And I, I had known that the epidemic was large in the South. Um, how about Tennessee? Are you guys seeing a lot of feral hogs? Not in our county. You know, every once in a blue moon or every few years, somebody will, will, claim to have killed one here but we don't have a lot of problems with them but over in counties i feel like it's just a matter of time before we do right. because we have so many creeks and swamps and stuff but over there's an area a public area it's called land between the lakes and yes. it's part in kentucky and part in tennessee oh, and i'm sure. over there very often in fact uh all winter i'm there after deer season, four or five days a week, squirrel hunting off our horses. And invariably, we're running into hogs. Our dogs will bay them up, and they do have a hog problem. Um, they do organized shoots from helicopters and, yeah. and trapping and everything they can think of. But, you know, you, that's almost like trying to fight <laughs> grasshoppers or something. I mean, yeah. they, they just... You you can't you can control them a little bit, but you can't eradicate them. No, they're like bunnies. They just they, they make they they have two gestations a year, and so you're you have a sow giving birth to ten twenty piglets. I mean, you you got your your work cut out for you. That's right, and they they're 
in areas that are not easily accessible and mm-hmm. over there it's it's rugged terrain and 170,000 acres of woods so <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a hog has a lot of places to hide over there so yeah but i i hope we do not get them i mean they're so destructive uh, as many crops as we have around here it would just devastate the farmers and they're having a tough time as it is yeah you know one of the things that i love about you is that you advocate acceptance of hunting methods even if they differ and if it's legal do it and and i've always thought that the infighting within the ranks of the hunting collective is a great weakener of our cause um you know i hunted hogs in tennessee with uh with dogs and after i did it i thought to myself on the way home i was glad i was successful but i thought yeah from now on i think i'm going to either stalk them or sit in a blind but i never once thought boy i don't think i should ever hunt with dogs and i think people that you know bring that up are really detrimental to our cause and you've always been a proponent of if you want to get out in the out- outdoors and live it up do it your way as long as it's absolutely. legal absolutely yeah. i i do i encourage um and you know, i'll probably get uh booze for this but that's just my theory you know if you want to hunt with a crossbow if you want to hunt with a a stick and a uh, a rock <laughs> that's your business <laughs> right. you know uh it, if it's legal i don't have a problem with it that doesn't mean that i want to do it right but but i'm going to keep my mouth shut and and cheer you on for whatever you do just as long as it's not a big poaching thing. Now that I get a, a bad taste. About oh, of course. It hurts us all. No, if it's, it's legal and ethical. Legal. Yeah. And as far as hunting a hog with a dog, I, I, I have no problem with that. Oh, I don't have a problem with it at all. I just, it, for I me, I was, I was, it wore me <laughs> out. I thought I was going to pass out running up and down the Cumberland mountains. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I, now I've gotten lazy and I just <laughs> sit buy a mud hole and wait on them. Right. And I had run up and down those hills trying to keep up with the dog. But, yeah. Uh, and it, you know, somebody's young and tough and wants to do it. Yeah. You have at it. I've always enjoyed, you know, if, if, and when I'm in a state that allows baiting, I like to use bait because for me, it facilitates a, a good shot and it distracts exactly. the animal. And it's yeah. funny that the people who express dismay at baiting game are the same people who set up at water holes for antelope or elk or <laughs> or plant elaborate food plots next to their tree stands. It's just I, ridiculous. I it, it makes no sense. And it's all boils down to it's like I'm righteous and, and do everything right. the proper way and you're doing it the wrong way. Well, to me, that's pretty judgmental. Amen. You know, Brenda, you've been on numerous African safaris, and I wanted to ask you, do you still uh, head over? Well, you know, when the virus come around, so much was um, shut down, travel was restricted, and and I don't think it it hurt the hunting industry terribly. And no, I did not go during that. Uh, One of the outfitters that is a good friend has been sending me all these pictures of new concessions that he has. And he's really tempting me. I love Africa. Um, I went many times. There's actually nothing left over that I particularly want to hunt, but it's fun just to enjoy that lifestyle and do the photo safaris. Just the, the smells and the sights are alone are worth the trip. The food is marvelous. The the life swing it, it's much slower and calmer where you have a time to observe the little things and soak it up where here you know our uh day is just too fast we, uh. we can't uh we we just can't drink in everything that is around us to enjoy and i for some reason, or I'm not sure how they do it, but they've harnessed that over there. They, yeah. they go at life much more relaxed. You know, they I miss the the fires and the simple food. You know, whatever you took that day, whether it be a warthog or a giraffe or a zebra, 
that's what you had for supper that night. Yeah. It was, it was peaceful, you know, even though there was in the latter years, there was internet service and all that. You weren't tempted because you had those, all those stars. Yes. You had all the, the lions roaring and there was such more or better entertainment that you didn't miss all the, the, TV and stuff. It it's just a magical place, it's and I a, love it. And I can't answer if I'm going back yeah. soon or not. I wouldn't be surprised if I do go back, though. But no, I'd like to I go with I've you. Give me a call. I'll go with you next time. Okay. <laughs> well, it's it's a long flight. But <laughs> let me tell you, it, it's like um, uh, I don't know it, a lot of things. Once you get there, you forget all of yeah. how cramped the, the flight was and well, if you ever go one time, you'll leave a little bit of yourself there and you have to keep going back. Yeah, they recapture it, it. Yeah. every time. Yeah, you mark your time by when I went to Africa. That's- well, let's talk about one of your most historic hunts. There was a Cape Buffalo that was practically on top of you. The most dangerous game, you know, amongst the most dangerous game. <laughs> Recount that hunt for us. Well, this was something that uh, I guess my bucket list hunt, and I don't think I've ever really considered having a bucket, but that was one thing that I thought, man, one day I'm going to chase them big, ugly critters. And so I worked at it a long time. It took me a year to get a permit because I wanted it with my bow and arrow. Mm. And so... um, I have a lady friend that's a biologist over there and she worked with the game department and they gave me all the rules and the rules were written back in the fifties of you had to pull a 90 pound bow and blah, blah, blah. Well, that was back when everybody, they were shooting long bows Mm -hmm. and they had not upped the laws since people got into compounds and stuff. So I uh, worked with the, I'm not even remember what his name, I mean, what his title was, but he was the uh, head of the game department in that area. And I sent him all these charts, you know, about kinetic energy and arrow weight versus uh, speed and, and on and on and on, trying to get him to understand that it wasn't totally about the, the poundage on your bow, even though I could shoot heavy poundage. So he, he gave me audience, you know, and he says, okay, you come over here and let's talk. And I did. And he says, I'll grant you a permit as long as you have a professional hunter that is uh, armed and, and with you. And so that was no problem because you have to have that anyway to hunt dangerous game. And they carry a 416 with open sights. Mm -hmm. So um, I worked on my setup and got it where I felt like I was the peak of uh, kinetic energy, had two bows that were exactly alike, and I filled uh, aluminum arrows with fiberglass and worked up to a 970-grain arrow, and and 160 grains of that was a cut-on-contact steel broadhead. Okay. So uh, that was, you know, you couldn't shoot far, but you could shoot hard uh, yeah. at, you know, up to 30 yards. It was flying very good and was packing a, a big punch. And it, if you will, I compared it to, would you rather someone throw a baseball and hit you in the head or a tennis ball? You know, they're about the same size, but one's a lot heavier. and One's right. going to leave a bigger knot on your head. Yeah. So that was, uh, I went in and, what was your draw weight? All of this. And and so sure enough, we, yeah. well, we set up different ways. We tried water holes. We tried uh, stands. They called them hides mm. up in trees. And we tried stalk and we tried different ways. But now it's hard to get within uh, bow distance of a, a bull. And that's what I was going after. And lo and behold, after about four days, uh, was able to get with it was 19 yards from or 19 steps on which I consider yards 
from a, a tremendous bull. Mm. And and the pH nodded, and I took the shot, and it was as perfect as if I could just go up and point my finger where I wanted to hit. And results, I mean, it took that one shot. He dashed back into the thorny bush, but he, it was like he didn't really know what it was. And the trackers and the guides says, you know, we have to give it an hour. And we did. We waited. And it, it didn't go probably 40 yards. It was, it was mm. stone cold dead. And they uh, dressed it out on the spot all of the trackers and everything we brought the uh, back straps in and they salted them peppered them threw them on the fire and absolutely the best meat i've really? ever put in my mouth absolutely wonderful i figured it'd be tough and stringy and strong was not but huh. uh and they told me they said as far as we have ever known or heard that is the only cape buffalo taken by a woman with a bow that didn't require uh, a shot from a, a firearm to put it down. Uh. But it it was just zoop. And they said, you know, very few men have ever done this because if you don't have a perfect hit, uh, Cape Buffalo is quite dangerous. In yeah. fact, you know, Capstick called it, or Hathaway called it, Black Death yeah. because they're intelligent and they – uh, hide and attack you and trap you. They'll, well, they're, like, they'll circle like back the, around you. Yeah, they circle yeah, around and get do. you from behind. They, yeah, yeah. They're they're very intelligent. How amazing but, is that? Uh, so that was uh, one of uh, many highlights. But w I was reflecting during that hour that we were waiting, and just to make sure that you know. We're, that it was a good shot. We didn't want to rush it at all. Mm. And I thought, you know, I've been, I've been conditioning for this my whole life. When I was a kid hauling hay and building those muscles and hauling wood and doing all the things that I did, those were the muscles right then that I was needing when I was a grown lady that mm. it was like, okay, girl, this is the, culmination of all the years <laughs> this is of, growing it, yeah. up of doing physical work. Yeah. And so, um, that, that cured that itch. You know, I, I never wanted to do it again. I did it once and it was, is it was everything I thought it was going to be, but that was it. I mean, yeah. I didn't what need you, another one. What was your draw weight on the bow that you used? Uh, 82 pounds, 82 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Packed a wallop. It took a long time to work up to that, yeah. And I would practice on, uh, like, uh, car tires, truck tires, mm. steel belted, radial tires. <laughs> and that was when I got to where I could, uh, you know, punch holes in them and, and do all that. Then I, I figured I could, I was good. You could get through the height of a Cape Buffalo. Amazing oh, stuff. Yeah. Oh, it went all the way. It, it didn't pass through, but it, it came out on the far side i want yes. to talk about some of the game that you've hunted and, and just pick your brain about your favorite states to hunt uh when it okay. comes to different animals so for whitetail i'm guessing your farm you're correct yeah. and and not because there's trophies there you know I, there's not but because i feel like i really earned them i mean i'm out there on that tractor uh working those food plots or bush hogging or you know spraying noxious weeds or doing something all the time and and i see them and i feel like that i'm providing them a good life and so um yes i enjoy being there i enjoy hunting there but yeah. as far as I mean, this is Tennessee. We got a, what, a three-month season and a huge bag limit. And and we don't have very seldom the, the deer that Iowa or Illinois or someplace like that. Right. Yeah. So where's your favorite place to hunt elk? I've had the best luck in Colorado. No, I've had the best luck in New Mexico. Mm. 
I, I've hunted elk in nearly every western state, but I would have to say New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think when you say Colorado, a lot of people don't realize how good the uh, antelope hunting is there. Oh, yes. And I'm going to tell you, antelope are fun critters. Mm-hmm. And they, um, a lot of people don't like to eat them. They say, oh, they eat that sage and they taste bad. I like that taste. I enjoy it too, yeah. I think it's good. Yeah, yeah. it's a rich meat. It's good. And it's not gamey. Mm-hmm. It's it's just, it's got a, it's got a different taste. I think sometimes well, people, uh, they think different means gamey and it's not. It's just a different taste. You right. Know. It's like chicken doesn't taste like turkey, you know. Right, and right, so right. Everything has its own taste. Yeah, wild pork is one of those things when I throw it on the grill, people say, this tastes different. They never say it tastes gamey, but it tastes sweeter. It's a sweeter pork than what we get from the farms, you know. Well, to me, when I'm do- on wild pork, a whole lot of it depends on if it's male or female. Some oh, of those yeah. old boars. Oh, yeah, it's not, yeah, yeah. They, I can smell it, and I prefer... A sow. Yeah, sour little one. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're, you're right. That's yeah, the key yeah. to hunting. You could, if you go on one of those big hunts, you, you could shoot one for the wall and then uh, some little ones for the, or some oh, sows for the, uh, yeah. I shot a sow in uh, Texas in November of uh, 18, and I got so much bacon. She was so full of fat that the, the mm-hmm. bacon was incredible. What about uh, your favorite place to hunt caribou? Well, I haven't done a lot of caribou. I I have hunted them, and it was in um, Quebec. I've done hunts up there, and gosh, you know, if you hit the migration, it is it is wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, right. But you know, and it if you don't hit it, it's a it's a long. It's a lot of truck. not. It's a long (laughs) trip and a lot of of nothing. Right. So it's not. The places that you hunt caribou is not where you can just run to town if hunting slow. You've yes. got to, you're there. You better enjoy nothing or it'll be a boring trip for you. But luckily, you know, I've been whenever um, the migration would come through, hunting was good. One thing about hunting caribou, a lot of times there'll be areas where there's bear and wolf and other game species and good fishing, which yeah. has been the story of where I've been. So once you tag out and maybe your buddies are still hunting, then um, there's other things to do. And yeah. in our party, there was, we would, the uh, natives would, the wolves would come through and they said, well, the caribou will be here tomorrow or the next day that the wolves always precede them which i couldn't figure that out because i thought the wolves would follow and and pick off any weak or yeah right young or something like that but it wasn't like that and i never did understand that but they said the wolves show up first so maybe they were there waiting on them i don't know but we did see the, the wolves would just be traveling through and then in another day or two the, the caribou would come straggling through and then there would just be herds of them. So yeah, uh, it's a fun deal. It, it's not, it's kind of like Cape Buffalo. It's not something that I have to do every year or real often, but it's one of those experiences that just gives you a lot to think about. And makes made my life fuller. Yeah. Yeah. And how about moose? Have you hunted moose a lot? Uh, yes and no. I've hunted moose and I don't know a lot. I I was hunted several times before I ever got one. But mm. yes, I I've taken moose, and that's uh, I've seen a lot of moose, even like in Idaho and Utah, and you know some of the the smaller moose species. But I never did have a tag, and I would just happen up on them if I was out elk hunting or mule deer hunting or something. But uh, yes, I did take one in Alaska. So oh, that's it's, yeah. It, it's one of those things you have to go a long way to, yeah. to hunt those things. Yeah, and it's not easy at all. It's a tough hunt. And all those animals are magnificent and majestic and magical, but there's something about the white-tailed deer 
that is just uh, puts them on the, as far as I'm concerned, puts it at the top of the, uh, the wildlife world. They are just like Fred Bear said, if you can successfully hunt a white-tailed deer, then you can successfully hunt any animal because mm -hmm. there's nothing as wary and is, is ready That's, to spring as the white-tail. That is true. Yeah. And it's, you know, like I told you on some of those species, you know, one and done. I've, I've done it. That's good. I don't have to do it again. But you never feel like that with deer. Mm -hmm. You know, you hunt them all your life, and you still can't wait for the next hunt. Right. So I, I can't explain it, but it's just the way it is. Well, Brenda Valentine, uh, you've done so much, and I want you to know how much I respect all that you've done for our industry well, my, and, our, and our lifestyle. I feel honored that you had me on your your show yeah and uh, it was good visiting and and you know talking and catching up and everything yes i would love to share a campfire with you one day i i do want to say you know one of the things about being a hunter or being a fisherman an outdoorsman and an outdoors woman is the planning and the anticipation that goes into right around the spring i start calling uh you know outfitters i start looking at my schedule to get to Michigan and Wisconsin for fishing and deer hunting. And so what, what, what plans do you have outside the farm this year that you want to kind of schedule well, in? I talked to the outfitter's wife yesterday and I'll be going over into Missouri. We, um, I have friends over there that run an outfit and I love hunting with them. And partly because I just like being around them, you know, and they, yeah. they run a legitimate camp. I'm not going in there to kill my buck of a lifetime, although you never know when that might happen. Right. But it's one of those things, the anticipation of it. I also have a, a good friend. And when I say friend, they become friends through hunting. They, they run little small outfits and you go and you just get to where you feel like they're almost like, kin or something you know you they're you just connect with some of these people and you keep up with them all during the year you know they this guy in nebraska that i just dearly love sent me turkey pictures this week of his mm -hmm. grandkids out that had taken turkeys and he has some good white tail but he has a lot of mule deer and uh, i hope to get out with him this fall so yeah i'll be traveling around and, and being in the woods and doing my thing. Excellent. Well, you keep doing what you're doing because you've inspired uh, many, many people to take up this great, great lifestyle. And uh, we'll see you on the trails, Brenda Valentine. Thank you so much. The Mike Tamano Happening.